Let's turn to John chapter 6, and we're going to look today at the next um, section of this um, the, this message. Really, it's, it's a discourse or a message that Jesus is giving on the bread of life. Last week, we saw that he declared to those who were there that he is the bread of life. He, he indicted those who came seeking him merely because they wanted to experience the miracle they wanted to be provided for. Um, as I have said, often in tongue-in-cheek, the people really enjoyed the free food and free health care they received from, from Jesus. And so, therefore, they sought to make him fit the mold of what they thought the Messiah should be and why he came. And Jesus uh, continues to show them that he has come to save people from sin. And so today, we're going to begin to see now, as Jesus continues to, to carry on this discourse there in the city of Capernaum, which we find out today is in the synagogue there, uh, we're going to begin to see the seeds of unbelief that are sown in the hearts of many there who are listening to him. Look at John chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Father, we now quiet our hearts before you for just a few minutes today. As we just said, lost in wonder, love, and praise of who you are and what you've done. And we ask that you would meet with us, that you would speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to do the the work that you need to do in our hearts today. God, there are some who hear these things today who need to place their full trust and belief in you. They have wrestled with with their eternity, they have wrestled with where, where they put their trust, they have looked to other places, but they have never fully committed themselves to following Jesus. And Lord, I pray today you would convict them of these things, you would draw them to yourself, your Holy Spirit would woo them to you. You would give them the grace to see these things, and I pray that they would make a decision to trust you. Where there are others who hear these things, who have wrestled with sin in their lives as a believer, who have given place to uh, that sin that's had victory over them, and, and they have gone round and round and round. They have, they have um, felt guilty over that sin. They have, they have made attempts to make it right, but they just continue to go back into it because, God, they've not submitted in these things to you. And today, Lord, I pray that you would show them that sin. You would show them the only way out of that is through submission to you, is, is following your word, is saying no to those things in your power, is, is maybe even making practical steps to find help and to get out of that. Lord, today I pray that you would lay your finger on the hearts of those 
who are in these places. And Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts today, as only you can. In your name we pray. Amen. We often get into trouble in lives, in our lives, when we overcomplicate things. We take a concept that's, that's really not that hard, and we turn it into a maze of steps and processes. And, and what we do is we obscure the end goal and only frustrate the one that we try to help in the process. You know, perhaps you've been a victim of this as you opened the manual to something you had to put together you bought from the store and thought, this is way too complicated, right? They could have said this a lot simpler. Or maybe you've been the one who tried to explain something to someone else and you got lost in all the details and you complicated the process. At its heart, the message of the gospel is quite simple. In order to enjoy new and eternal life, one must simply place full and complete trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from sin. But as you observe people's reactions to the message of the gospel, you will learn that it is actually a little bit more involved than you and I might think. Now, now this is not because we need to do anything to gain our salvation or do anything to keep our salvation, but because they're the, of the nature of what it means to actually believe in Jesus. Because belief requires conscious choice, decision, and declaration. Understand this. That thinking about Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. Or knowing facts about Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. In fact, you can even understand what it means to be saved from your sin and still not believe in Jesus. Believing is totally different. Believing in Jesus means actually acting upon what Jesus says, depending on him for salvation, and crowning him the Lord of your life. And the people who have gathered here in John chapter 6 to hear Jesus' discourse on the bread of life are a mixed bunch. You're going to see over this week and next week's message that, that, that some of them outright reject Jesus and walk away. Others will hang around for a little while And when they realize that they're not going to get what they want, they're going to leave. And still, there is another group who will stay. Why? Because they believe in who Jesus is. And today, we see in this passage the seeds of unbelief that are sown in the hearts of people as Jesus continues to reveal who he is and the responsibility of those who hear his message. Here's the thing. When you're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, you will have a response. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You either believe him or you don't. You either accept him or you reject him. And what we see here is belief in Jesus requires the full commitment of your heart and soul to him, internalizing his truth fully in complete trust. And Jesus uses this picture throughout this passage from last week to this week and and even a little bit into the passage we'll look at next week uh, of the bread of life. And you read this passage. I mean, you have to admit, you read some of the things here and, and from our human standpoint and human understanding, some of it seems like, wow, that's really hard to understand. And we're going to talk about that as we go through the passage today. But, but the, the picture that Jesus gives of the bread of life is an excellent picture of what it means to trust him. Because just as, as you cannot benefit from physical food in your life unless you physically partake and internalize that through, through eating it, you cannot fully experience and fully understand what it means to believe in Jesus until you internalize that through personal belief and trust in him. And that is what Jesus is going to continue to reveal to those who are listening, both in that day that he's giving this discourse and today as John records these things for us to read today. But first, we want to look and see where these seeds of unbelief are being sown. Who is it that, that, that's, that's not listening to these things? And we see that in verses 41 and 42 on the rebuttal of Jesus' origins that comes after his last statements here. In verse 41, 
I want you to notice a parallel reaction that's had uh, by those who are there that day to those in the past. It says, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So having heard Jesus' teachings and declarations about his identity as the bread of life, those gathered there began to take umbrage with what he said, that he is the bread of life. Now we should note specifically here, who is John, the apostle, talking about? Throughout the the gospel, uh, John here uses this phrase, the Jews. He says, the Jews then complained about him. And, And more often than not, This is used in a negative connotation in John's gospel. And what he's using it to refer to is he's frequently used it to refer to the opponents of Jesus in the nation of Israel. And primarily, it was the religious leaders of Israel. Now here, it most likely refers to a group of religious leaders who are located in that northern area of the land of Israel in the area of Galilee. Because we learn at the end of this section that Jesus here has been teaching in a synagogue at Capernaum. And we don't know if this whole discourse has been there or if it perhaps the, 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 this section is signaling a shift to the synagogue. But regardless, this is a group that we'll see here in a second are familiar with his family, indicating that they're a, a local group. They're not come from Jerusalem. And their reaction is is interestingly similar and parallel to that of their forefathers. If you have read the Old Testament, if you have read even a little bit about the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt, then you would remember, probably, that that was a very unhappy group of people. Um, I usually call them the whiny Israelites, right? And I have this I still have a friend of mine to this day who, who remembers in, one, in church one time I did the whiny Israelite voice. I'm not going to give you that today. You'll have to come back another time. Um, but, you know, every time something went wrong, right, they cried out and complained. They murmured. And here you have what John tells us the Jews then complained about him. That's a very interesting word there. That word complained is a word very closely related to the idea of Israel in the Exodus murmuring against God. It is an onomatopoetic word. The Greek word is gongudso. And and the idea behind that word is it imitates the sounds of murmurings and grumbling in muffled undertones. In fact, when you go to what's known as the Septuagint, now the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, which is the language of this day. When, when you go to, to, the, to the, the book of the Exodus and, and throughout the, the, the Israelites' journeys, whenever you would see this idea that the Israelites murmured or grumbled, the translators, uh, translating from Hebrew into Greek, chose that word, gongutso, to talk about the murmurings that the people undertook. Do you see the similarity? They're doing exactly what their forefathers had done. They're murmuring. They're grumbling against Jesus. Upon hearing Jesus' words about the source of the manna and how he is the ultimate fulfillment that's found in him alone as the bread of life, the Jewish leadership now reacts in a way that's very similar to their ancestors. And it's quite humorous, by the way, if you think about it, how they exalted the manna and their forefathers, the manna they experienced from Moses, and if you read these, the, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'll find out that their forefathers really complained to Moses about things like the manna, by the way. And we see what it is that draws their displeasure. It is nothing less than Jesus' claims to be the source of eternal life and his proclaimed heavenly origins that back that claim. They are grumbling against him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And so in verse 42, you see the parentage matters that they take, say specifically uh, take issue with regarding Jesus. They, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You see, what Jesus was doing is Jesus was challenging the people's vaunted view of the past, of their ancestors, and their overemphasis on Moses. He had clearly shown them that their preoccupation with physical food blinded them to the full fulfillment that was standing before them in himself. But instead 
of responding to his words with belief, the people continued to harden their hearts against him. And they did this by focusing on what they thought they knew about Jesus. They pointed to his supposed parentage. You notice here, they talk about his parents, Joseph and Mary. Now, Joseph was a man who was wed to Mary. And you probably know the story if you've been around church part of your life at least. You, you come at Christmas time and heard the message uh, about Jesus' birth. Now, by the way, we noted earlier in the book of John that it's that's very likely Joseph is not alive at this point. And just because they reference him here doesn't mean he's alive. It just means they're familiar with who Joseph is. In their minds, Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. And some had perhaps seen him grow up, and others had known Jesus as a carpenter. It is likely that some of those who even gathered there that day knew the auspicious circumstances of his conception before the marriage of Joseph and Mary. What they do not acknowledge is the truth of Jesus' virgin birth. And now, Jesus' claims to deity are too much for them to overcome and reconcile with human reasoning. Jesus has very plainly told them who he is and where he's come from, that he is the, the, the Messiah, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy, that he is the bread who has come down from heaven. And so, in an effort to drown out his words, they go after his origins. What they are doing is seeking to explain away the conviction of their hearts by dismissing this man altogether. By the way, it's a response that's not uncommon in the hearts and lives of people even this day. That when God begins to convict your heart of sin, you have all the reasons in the world why you shouldn't listen to it. We begin to explain those things away and drown them out. And as we have observed in John before, the deity of Jesus is vital to the gospel. That is why Jesus had no qualms about his declarations of these things. Because if he was not God, he could not say or offer the things that he is saying and offering. To the Jews that John references here, this is unacceptable. Jesus could not be of heavenly origin. Because if Jesus really is who he says he is, then what he says is the truth. And that's a very convicting thought. If Jesus, but yet Jesus will not answer their speculative grumblings and will instead show them the truth of himself and their need of him. Let's go on to verses 43 through 51 and see the refocus on the truth that Jesus calls them to see. He again tells them the necessity that one must come to him in verses 43 through 46. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus very plainly commands that they are to stop the murmuring and the grumbling and the complaining about these things. He has shown them who he is. He has given them the evidence they need to understand his power and authority. If you remember the day before, he fed fifteen to 20,000 people on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And their murmurings simply reflect their hardened hearts against God's call for repentance and belief. And what you understand here is it doesn't matter if Jesus continues to elaborate on his heavenly origins or not, if he answers the questions about his parentage or not, they have shown their intentions. And so what he's going to do is he's going to continue to show what it takes for one to be made whole and new for eternity. It takes the work of God in one's life. Jesus, again, reiterates here in verse 44 that no one can come to the Father unless he draws him. It takes a work of God in one's life for us to see our need of a Savior. You and I are born with no spiritual life or propensity to seek God in and of ourselves. The Bible is very clear that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. However, we live in a world that is full of the evidence of a creator. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. 
that passage, along with other passages, show us that the world we live in very clearly shows us there is a God. There is a creator. We are responsible to someone. And you don't have to look very far in the pages of human history to find out that people have recognized this for a very long time. Because even if they don't worship God, they end up worshiping something. But even in that creation, though it is enough to show us we have a creator, there is not enough there to show us the gospel. It is enough for someone to realize there is someone greater than I am and I'm responsible to them and I, and I have a problem of sin. Because we can observe that in, in, even in the consciousness that God has given us that, that tell us there is a right and there is a wrong. But we need the truth of God's word to show us the Savior. The work of conviction of sin and desiring salvation through a Savior is a work of God's grace in our lives. You and I must realize we cannot get ourselves into God's family. Now, by the same token, God's drawing of us to him will not override one's rejection of Jesus. One author said it this way. Salvation is never achieved apart from the drawing power of God, and it is never consummated apart from the willingness of humans to hear and learn from God. And so again, I introduce you to the tension we saw last week in last week's passage, uh, that, that, that God must work in our hearts, and we must respond in belief. Belief comes as the obedient response of a heart that has been wooed and drawn by God. And as Jesus says here, all those who trust in him, he says at the end of verse 44, I will raise him up at the last day. God holds power over all life and will resurrect the bodies of all who trust in him. This is the work of God's regeneration to all who believe in him. And it's a work that comes through the word of God. Jesus says it is written in the prophets and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There in verse 45, this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. God's word is the source of all spiritual understanding. And that is something we have to, we have to, to acknowledge And we have to understand with our lives that God's word is the source of all all spiritual understanding. It is through God's word that we are taught by God. And time and again, you can read in the Old Testament that time and again, Israel failed to be taught by God. They failed to listen to what he had to say. And here in Jesus' day, Her spiritual leaders did not turn the hearts of the people to God, but instead had used the law of God to turn the spotlight on themselves. It was a very self-serving religious leadership. We need God's word to draw us to God. We need the life-giving word to open our eyes to sin and to show us our Savior. Jesus is the living word of the living God. He is from God and has seen the Father as God. He says there in verse 46 that not not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. That he, as the Son of God, has been in the presence of God the Father. The word of God points us to Jesus, the living word, and it is through him we know the Father. Jesus stood before the people of his day, come to show them the Father and to show them their need to come to him. And in order to gain eternal life, one must fully partake of the bread of life. But in order to do that, one must see who God is in his word. And so when you meet people as a Christian and you want to show them who God is and what he's done, Sometimes we say, well, I just don't know what to start, where to start. I don't know what to tell them. You need only pick up this word of God and share with them what God says. That is why we have to know the word of God. Because believe it or not, no one has ever smooth-talked anyone into the kingdom of God. In fact, the most powerful testimonies are those full of the word of God. And if someone's knowledge of God 
isn't based on the word of God, they don't know God. And that's what Jesus was telling the people there today, that day, and that's what we need to see today. That the only way to know who God is, the only way to know what it means to have eternal life in God, is to know the word of God. And as we know the word of God, then we can partake of who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus says as he continues to refocus on the truth here. He says in verses 47 through 51, there's a necessity to partake of himself. He says, most assuredly, and again, that statement comes up, it's come up quite a few times in this passage, but it's, or it may say in your Bible, verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's, it's an emphatic statement that this is something you can count on. This is admissible in a court of law even. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world." In no uncertain terms, Jesus once again confirms the surety of eternal life in himself, that anyone in who believes in him has this life, and that life begins now with new life in himself. It's a very interesting word here that, that Jesus uses. He says in verse 46, I'm sorry, verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That word believes isn't in the past or the aorist form of the verb. It's in the present active form of the verb. You could say it this way, uh, that, that, that he who is believing in me. A believer, a true believer in God, is one who is characterized by an ongoing active trust in Jesus. Though they are imperfect, Believers exercise an active, ongoing faith in God that results in God's transforming work continuing on in their lives. You see, the whole idea of being a believer and walking away is completely foreign to someone who truly follows Jesus Christ. This past week, um, here at the church, I received a letter. And uh, it's really interesting because sometimes I get these handwritten you know, envelopes. Oh, what is this, you know? Well, it was from a Jehovah's Witness in California, of all places. Um, how he got our address, I don't know. But I found it really interesting as I read through this letter, and he was talking about a young man that he had been talking to, and this is the line that he used. I'm just going to read you just a, a brief snippet. He says, having been a devout born-again Baptist in the past, I just want to stop right there. There's a great fallacy in that statement. Because how can you be born again and then you're not born again? You can't. One who is a believer in Jesus is one who continues on in these things. Yes, there will be times of struggle, of sin, of chastening by God for, for those things in our lives. But it is impossible for one who has truly come to Christ to never belong to him. You say, well, what about somebody? I, I, I've seen it in my life, Pastor that I saw somebody who, who did all these things and did this and did that and did this, I would point you back to what this man shared with me in this letter that he sent, and probably with 15,000 of his closest friends when he mailed it out. Okay, I understand. It's not about being a devout, born-again Baptist. It's about being a believer in the Son of God. One who merely assents to the idea of Jesus or to the tenets of a denomination is not a believer but a religious adherent. There are a lot of religious people in the world who do a lot of what we would call as human beings good things, but they have not been changed by God. Disciples place their full belief and trust in Jesus Christ. And the things of Jesus are not always easy. How many of you have walked with, with, with Jesus for some time in your life and found that life isn't always easy? How many of you have found that the things of God aren't always easy? They're not. In fact, we continue to read this, this statement. We continue to read what Jesus says here. And you're going to see next week that people say, well, this is a hard saying. And they leave. 
Because they don't know what to do with what Jesus has said. But that is why belief is a commitment to and reliance on God and not myself and my own understanding. See, religion is great because it's all about what I can understand, what I can do. But the minute that you're hit with something you can't explain, you don't understand, well, it's really not for me anymore. Jesus now continues on in the image and truth that he is the bread of life. He again uses that statement there in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on. Remember um, last week that, that the people wanted Jesus to bring manna down from heaven because, well, Moses brought manna down. They basically wanted him to prove it, right? Prove you're really the Messiah by bringing down bread from heaven. And Jesus says that, that he is the bread that God promised from heaven. He's the fulfillment of the physical thing that God provided for the people of Israel. And now, Jesus says he is the true bread, the fulfillment of that which the Israelites partook, because he shows the superiority of himself to that which God provided his people in the past. The Jews loved Moses and, and I use a huge quotation marks, his manna. But Jesus shows there's an inherent problem here. So for 40 years, God sent manna from heaven. Six days a week, you get up, you go outside, there it is on the ground, right? Now, answer this question. How many of those people that ate that manna are standing in front of Jesus that day? Zero. In fact, most of them... That whole generation, remember that whole generation at the end of the promised land? They died before the manna even finished falling down from heaven. Because it was a temporary provision to meet their temporary physical needs. And Jesus says, I mean, he makes it very plain, that your fathers ate the manna. That manna that you're so caught up in, they ate it and they died. Conversely, Jesus is the bread that comes from heaven who gives eternal life. He says, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. There is a greater bread. He is the living bread and partaking has incredible results. Now, before we we continue on in this passage, and you may have picked up on it as we read even in our scripture reading at the beginning of the message there's some very difficult things that Jesus says here let's be very clear here Jesus is not literally talking about people eating him during this passage he is speaking figuratively he is speaking metaphorically with a picture that fits the whole context remember Jesus often taught in these pictures of physical things that teach us eternal truths and he's teaching here of this eating and drinking, of partaking of who he is. And just as physical bread must be taken into your system to do any good, so must one take in Jesus. You can sit in church week after week, but that's not the same as partaking in Jesus and believing in him for yourself. Just as as you can drag you know, I, I could drag you every week down to the pizza buffet and sit you down by the pizza buffet and you say, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. But if you don't eat, it doesn't do you any good, right? It's the same with us. If you don't actually, for yourself, make a decision to place your faith in Jesus, it doesn't do you any good. There must be a choice made for salvation There must be a conscious placing of faith in his work. And Jesus prophesies that at the end of verse 51, what that work is. Did you see that last statement at the end of verse 51? And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What Jesus is saying there is he's prophesying his coming death on the cross. That he would offer himself as a sacrifice for the human race. And that all who would come to him for salvation will have the price of that salvation paid in full through his finished work on the cross. Jesus didn't come to just proclaim the standards of God. The law of God did that pretty well. That was his intended purpose. 
The law of God shows us we have a sin problem. And can you imagine if Jesus came and exposed every person's sin by saying, look what, the, what, what it says about you, and then left? That would be utter hopelessness. He came instead proclaiming the message of the gospel that you and I have a sin problem, that we are woefully short of God's standard. But then he offered himself up as the perfect spotless lamb of God, paying the price that God demanded and offering us his righteousness. That is the glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus satisfies the requirement of divine justice. And though it is a simple message, it is not a simple choice. For one must place unshaking faith in Jesus alone. The message of the gospel is a hard message for people to hear because it makes us come face to face with we can't save ourselves and we need a savior. But it's even harder to hear for hardened hearts against the gospel. And that is exactly what we see unfold before us in the balance of this passage today. We look finally at the rejected requirement in verses 52 through 59. First, see the, um, really what I call the physical repulsion of the people in verse 52. The Jews, again, that's the religious leadership, therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And once again, Jesus' illustration of an eternal truth By a temporal means, it completely goes over the head of some people, right? They just continue to see only the physical fulfillment. Now he's talking about eating himself. Are we really going to eat this guy? I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea here. Their blinded, hardened hearts led them into arguments over what Jesus was saying. And they began to argue among themselves about these cannibalistic practices that Jesus is now promoting. Do you know what the greatest cause of spiritual ignorance is? It's unbelief. And though they argue, Jesus will not soften his message. Instead, he intensifies it. You know why? Because he's bringing people to that point of decision. He's going to continue to give the message of what people need to hear. They're either going to believe him or they're going to walk away. And hearts will be exposed on this day. Look at the spiritual assurance that Jesus gives in the rest of this passage. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which come, came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus now takes the metaphor a step further. For not only does he say that those who come to him are those who eat his flesh, but now he says what? They are also those who drink his blood. And this is an even greater repulsion to the Jewish crowd. The Old Testament law specifically, specifically forbid eating meat with the blood still in it. Because the blood represents life. But also, in the, in the, in the scriptures, what you see is that ultimately, blood also represents a violent death. And the point is this. Without blood, there can be no redemption. Jesus' blood was the price of the redemption of mankind. And just as sacrificial lambs for hundreds of years atoned for sin with their innocent blood, Jesus' innocent blood as the Son of Man would pay the price of sin. And the fact that the Messiah would die is a hurdle that, frankly, many of these Jewish leaders and others in the Jewish community could not overcome. Because in their mind, the Messiah was coming to overthrow the government and give them everything they wanted. 
He was coming to rule and to reign, not suffer and die. But Jesus tells us that true life is found in his flesh and blood as the bread of life. Now, though it is primarily spiritual, we should note that there is a physical benefit to partaking in the bread of life. Did you catch that throughout this passage and last week? That this is a spiritual decision you have to make, a choice to place your faith in Jesus Christ, but it has physical ramifications. What is that physical ramification? That one day you will be resurrected. Do you see that? It is a spiritual decision with a physical ramification that you will be given eternal life, and even at the last day, your body will be resurrected. Now, I want to take just a minute and go down a side road here, okay? Let us take a moment and pause and discuss one other way this passage is sometimes misapplied. Perhaps you've heard it this way before. Some believe in this passage that John is dealing with what we call the Lord's Supper. Now, tonight in our service, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. I'm going to, I'm going to have, I have a message from Luke 22 uh, that we're going to preach and look at the Lord's Supper tonight. But, but some believe that that's what John is doing here. He's, he's, he's giving these things that Jesus said because what Jesus is really telling us is something about the Lord's Supper. This ordinance that was set forth by Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples is, is to be taken in remembrance of Jesus' atoning work. But John is not seeking to expound on that here. Because for one, how could Jesus speak of such a thing when it has not been set forth to his disciples yet at this point. I mean, that's still another year and a half away. Two years, one, one to two years, sorry. I think through the calendar. <laughs> that's still some time away for him to, to institute the Last Supper with his disciples and, and to see what that means. For another, this passage speaks Jesus has already spoken here of a one-time sacrifice and a one-time partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus through the assimilation of belief in one who continues to believe. And so the false doctrine that we need to partake of Jesus' physical body and blood at the Lord's Supper does not fit with what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was offered up for sin once. And we observe the Lord's Supper to help us remember that sacrifice. And it calls to our hearts and minds the need to give thanks to God for such a wonderful act of love and grace. And it reminds us that Jesus paid it all. But Jesus here is not referring to a physical act of eating and drinking either then or afterwards. And there are some, particularly the Catholic Church, who teach that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are physically present in the elements of what they call communion. And of course, in the Catholic Church, it's also viewed as a sacrament, as a means of grace into your life. My friend, we do not re-offer Jesus Christ at that. He's been offered. He's risen again. There are still others who see it as, well, there's some kind of spiritual presence within the... When you come tonight, if you come tonight and be a part of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to tell you right now, I bought the crackers from Christian book distributors. They're just bread, Okay? Miss Sue probably went down and bought Welch's grape juice from the supermarket, okay? It's just bread and juice. Now, we're going to talk tonight about what it is that this reminds us of and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to view it. But, we do, but we're not talking about, John is not talking, Jesus is not talking about here that every time you do this, you're re-offering him. It's already been done. What he's talking about here is he's talking about uh, a belief in himself as the Son of God who would perform the finished work of redemption. And as Jesus says in verse 55, his flesh is the true food and his blood is the true drink. There is no substitute or source for eternal life. And that is a life found in Jesus. And Jesus goes on in verse 56. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is a promise that those who partake of him and his gift of eternal life abide or you could say remain in him and he in them. This is a wonderful truth. That at salvation you are united with Jesus Christ. 
He lives in you and you in him. His presence is ever with you and we will, you will not be separated from him. And all these promises Jesus makes comes from the authority of God the Father. He continues in verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus was not merely a man proclaiming some new ideas. He was God in the flesh giving the greatest news. And just as Jesus and the Father are one and share eternal life, so all those who come to Jesus and abide in him have life. The surety of eternal life is found in the truthfulness and the surety of God himself. This is Jesus, the bread of life, the greatest fulfillment of God's promises and pictures. And Jesus reminds them again at the end of this passage that unlike physical manna, Jesus gives everlasting life. He is our only hope and eternal joy. And the hearers in the synagogue that day have begun to show their unbelief. They wrestled with the things Jesus said, and they didn't wrestle with them because, well, I'd really like to understand this more. They wrestled with how they might refute them and prove him wrong or blasphemous. And Jesus clearly showed to all that he is the only way to God. And the seeds of unbelief would grow into the weeds of rejection in the hearts of many. But there would also be those who believed and enjoyed the fruit of eternal life. And many, or some believe that, that after this statement, that there's already a group now that's rejected and walked away. And I haven't finished studying for next week yet, okay? But you're going to see that. But there's a group that, that's going to stick around, and then they're going to leave eventually. And there's another group that stays. But what, but what, what some believe here is that this group that Jesus is talking to, this first group of this unbelief, they're walking away at this point. That's it. We reject. And you and I are faced with the same decision today. And if you have come to know Christ, you are called to share that message with others, living the power of in the power of his new and eternal life. In Jesus, eternal life is secured once and for all. A belief in Jesus requires the full commitment of your heart and soul to him, internalizing his truth fully in complete trust. The great message of Jesus is that there is eternal life and peace found in him. He came to earth and finished the work as the Son of God, giving himself freely for all. And the Father draws us to himself through his word, calling for us to abandon our trust in anything other than Jesus himself. And you have to ask yourself, have you partaken of the bread of life? Just like physical food, the truth of Jesus' atoning work will do you no good unless you internalize and embrace it. And if God has stirred within your heart your need for a Savior, He is drawing you to Himself. And I encourage you to respond to that hunger for true life and come to Jesus. Because this is a personal decision that you must make to place your trust in what Jesus says. No one else can make that decision for you. Some of you have been privileged to grow up in a Christian home. You've grown up in a home where people, where your parents brought you to church. My dad used to say he, drew, he grew up on drugs. His parents drug him to we church every week, okay? And I can confirm that I also grew up that way. But just because you go to church every week doesn't make you someone who believes in Jesus. Just because your parents were Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you've heard some good things about Jesus or you don't think negative things about Jesus doesn't make you a believer in Jesus. It's a personal decision to respond to God. And if you've never made that decision, I invite you to do so. I invite you to acknowledge your sin before a holy God, to acknowledge that there is a just punishment for that sin, and to call out for his love and his grace to be poured out in your life and trust in him. And to those of us in this room who have done so, the question is, do you and I live this out in our lives every day? Do we live out our calling to be a disciple? 
understand that the gospel isn't an invitation to try harder or do better in life. The gospel isn't make a snap decision and now I'm just going to go on and do whatever I want to do in my life. It is a decision with incredible ramifications on our lives. It is a decision that lays on our new lives a new calling. And what do those around you need to hear that they may see their need of a Savior? They need to hear the Word of God. Do you live your life in such a way that you look for others to share the gospel with? Do we live with eternity in view, or are we just so single-minded, i got to make it through this day, and I don't care about what anybody else is doing in my life? Or do we walk through the crowds with compassion? And then does our life reflect the God that you serve so that when you tell others the good news, you don't counteract it with the way you live your life? See, the greatest detriment to the gospel that you you and I can experience is ourselves. And if we don't walk in fellowship with God and obedience with him, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you don't look any different. You don't do any of this. You're the same person as I am. Why would I need that God? May God burden our hearts to live for him. May he burden us to reach others for him. And may he continue to woo the hearts of those who have not responded to his call of salvation. I would close with this. It's a simple encouragement that I would give you each and every week. That whatever God is doing in your life, whatever he has impressed upon your heart, I implore you to submit to him in that. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and when I do, we're not going to have an invitation or anything like that, but I would encourage you, to, if God is working in your heart, to begin to talk to him there. And if you need to stay after church today and spend time with God, if you need, if you need to talk to me or my wife or somebody here about something that God's doing in your heart, we'd love to, to take the time to do that. But you and I well know that if we say, okay, God, I'll deal with that when I have time, we're going to walk out those doors and we're never going to have time. This is not to scare you. This is not to twist your arm. I'm just just giving you the real life facts, folks. (laughs) That we need to do business with God. May God give us the grace and the courage to do so. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his salvation that we find in him alone. His sacrifice for us on the cross. And Lord, we ask today that you would answer our request to show us our sin to overwhelm us with the Savior Lord for those who have not placed their faith in you would you show them their need of you for Christians today would you show us those things that we need victory over and we need your help And Lord, would you give us the courage to reach out to others that we may find help, accountability, that we may be pointed back to your word as the only stability for our lives. We ask that as we leave this place today, you would continue to hammer away at our hearts, that you would get the honor and glory and bring us back tonight to worship you again. In your name we pray, amen.